All right, good afternoon, everyone. It's Dr. Nigro again, our next episode of Psychology Unplugged. Another great week of talking with so many of you guys from around the world. Uh, very appreciative for all the comments and feedback. Uh, if I haven't gotten back to you, I will give you my contact information at the end of this episode. So today with us, I am very happy and privileged to have a guest speaker, uh, Dr. Mark Rigo, a psychiatrist who is a professor at Yale, who wrote uh, what I think is an incredible book, an incredibly relevant topic, that uh, the title of this book is called Frontal Fatigue, The Impact of Modern Life and Technology on Mental Illness. And if you guys have been following the program, you knew I did one of the episodes I titled Anti-Social Media, but I think his book is outstanding because all of us can relate to this, and you don't have to be a medical professional, you don't have to be a neuropsychologist, a psychiatrist, a prescriber, a clinician. To, to really grasp, I think, what Dr. Rigo and his points are trying to make in this. So without any hesitation, Dr. Rigo, welcome to Psychology Unplugged. Thanks very much. Very happy to be here. So can you briefly describe what your what was your intention of writing Frontal Fatigue? Well, it actually started out as an academic paper given out a meeting. And I had been interested for a long time in the relationship between modern life and psychiatric illness. There was already the data had started to, I mean, it had been out for a while actually, but it was coming out on a more frequent basis about increased prevalences of usually depression, but other mental disorders or earlier onsets of severe mental illness. I know you had referenced in your book a lot about earlier diagnoses of ADHD, uh, bipolarity, schizophrenia. Yeah. And yep. um, uh, thing, things like ADHD, uh, you know, are very much more in the news. Uh, so I was very interested in this whole area. I became interested in philosophy as a kind of a way to tackle it in addition to psychiatric tools and excuse me a meeting uh, in 2005 on psychiatrists and philosophers which is held along with the APA uh, was held and the theme that year was technology and psychiatry and I thought oh, this is an opportunity I'm going to use technology as a proxy for modern life, and then I'm gonna do the research and have a chance to tackle this. But as I did the research, it became clearer to me that I didn't have to use technology as a proxy for modern life, because technology is modern life. And I don't just mean devices, computers and phones. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the thinking and the tasks of technology, the demands of technology, uh, what technology brings us permeates our lives and has taken over where in other parts of our, of our lives we would use things like culture and tradition to inform ourselves about how to live, whether how to do trivial things like cook or how to do 
complicated things like figure out who we were and how to raise our families and things. And the, 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 the irony is that the very mechanism by which we're doing this podcast is exactly it's, kind of what we're talking about. <laughs> technology, absolutely. Uh, time, space, distance have all been dissolved. So you and I can talk you know, across states and we could do it uh, on the phone or on the computer and people can listen to us later. So all that gets gets uh, taken away. Um, but to, to get back to, to the story of this, it just became clearer that technology was so much a bigger part of our lives than I had suspected that, that the research just kind of fell together. I did the paper and then years later wanted to make it into a book. And I did the research over, but this time there was even more. And one researcher that I talk about in the book, Amy Arnston, who's at Yale, and who was uh, an international authority on the prefrontal cortex, had done a lot of research on the prefrontal cortex and mental illness. Now, I, I, I mean, I have an understanding of the prefrontal cortex, so, the orbital prefrontal yeah, cortex. Well, of course you do. Would, would it be possible uh, for you to explain from your perspective how important the prefrontal cortex is in mental health in general? Well, to quote Professor Arnston, she says, if we call it mental illness, that's because the prefrontal cortex is involved. That's how fundamental she sees it as. And every imaging study we've done has looked at different parts of the brain, but it's always the prefrontal cortex and something else that they're looking at. Um, and do you think so it, do you think it's the amount of information, the type of information, the the uh, speed of information that's causing kind of decompensation of the prefrontal cortex? I think it's the demands that we're putting on it. The prefrontal cortex is not uh, is not a stress system. It's it's a system that is supposed to work under calm periods. When you stress the prefrontal cortex just by stressing the individual or the animal um, or doing something experimental, it can even inject a little caffeine into the brain, um, the prefrontal cortex shuts down. Um, so we put demands on the prefrontal cortex, whether it's by sitting at our computers all day or just as I talked about the way we approach problems, instead of culture and tradition, we use Google. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can't tell you from my experience how many patients come in as a neuropsychologist that have gone onto Wikipedia, gone onto Google, gone onto WebMD, have self-diagnosed, and, you know, the, like you said, the advantages, I'm able to do a podcast with you via state lines, which is the positive side of it, but the negative side of it, and I think... Uh, the pandemic, from my experience with patients, 
has certainly resulted in a significant increase. And my wife, Julie, is a psychiatric prescriber, and she asked, she said, well, why don't you talk about prevalence rates? And I said, I'm not sure the prevalence rates in the current DSM are accurate. I think they're probably higher than what they would be. What's your perspective on that? I, I did a, a little article on, uh, I think it was medium.com about this, about a year into the pandemic. And numbers had gone up across the board, again, in the same patterns, whereas severe mental illness did not go up, but it seems to have a more difficult course. But other things in the depression, anxiety, uh, and uh, neuropsychological things like ADHD uh, were definitely more prevalent. And young people were taking the hit predominantly. And I think the explanation um, is not just the stress of, of the pandemic, because you could say adults are under even more stress because mm -hmm. they have to worry about paying bills and they're more aware of other people's health problems. And they're also working remotely. Uh, a lot of institutions and companies are now working remotely, so they're forced to be in front of their computers 8, 12 hours a day or, right. or on the phone. And so are the students. I think the difference with the students, though, with young people is that they have a more passive presence they're not at meetings, they're at classes. So to just, you know, put it in, in one kind of lump, I think modern life has sort of doubled down on young people because of the pandemic. So they are even more shackled to technology and they are even more cut off from social contacts. Yeah, I see, I, see, I see it a lot with, with kids. And, you know, I'll ask kids, how many friends do you have? And they'll say, I got 700. I'm saying, well, you're 12. <laughs> you know, and the concept of, of friendship, you know, these are my online friends or my gaming friends. That's very funny. And they yeah. don't know how to talk to a girl or talk to a boy or ask somebody out that, that you know, even, even in our own family, even today, the kids were over and everybody's on their phone. And we're all in the same room. <laughs> and we're, and we're, and we're, text, we're texting each other. They're walking around in circles. And they talk about having girlfriends and boyfriends, but they haven't really ever met them. Right, exactly. Um, so in, in, so I, in terms of the title of your book, Frontal Fatigue, can you elaborate on that? Well, so frontal fatigue is the... Is the, is the name I'm giving this condition where the demands of a modern life in a technological society put too much strain on the prefrontal cortex and leave it in this chronic, vulnerable state. So we're all more vulnerable. Now, as you know, some people are more vulnerable than others. So it's gonna it's gonna uh, play out differently, but everybody is more vulnerable than before. That's frontal fatigue. Instead of like having air pollution, you know, which makes you know all lung diseases worse, and of course everybody is different. So it's like that sort of background condition, and we all have it. And one one interesting thing that I learned speaking to. Uh, uh, PFC expert, like what in, in the book, 
is that the prefrontal cortex is the only part of the brain that really, almost literally, gets tired. Other parts of the brain function and then they don't. If they simply can't function any longer. The PFC has a curve, it starts to slow down and not work as well, and you can tire it out. And that's when you start seeing problems. You can't remember a word, you can't remember why you walked into a room, you snap at people, you know, you start to see all those types of things. Those are all symptoms of the breakdown of uh, BFC function. Are there, are there any physical manifestations as a result of frontal fatigue? That's a good question. Not in, this, not in, the, in the way I'm talking about the prefrontal cortex. It's, it's a pretty large brain area, and it does include other things like, uh, like, like it takes all, all of our senses and puts them together so we just have one picture of the world instead of, you know, one visual channel and one hearing channel. We have just one big picture. That's a lot of the PFC. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking really about executive function, paying attention, thinking abstractly, and our ability to inhibit our emotions and some higher social functions. That, that part of the PFC that that you and I talk about in our in our jobs, and so no, it doesn't really give you physical uh, symptoms, you know, other than things that go with emotional symptoms, maybe some motor tension, uh, some heart rate increase, and some sweating. One of the, that's really a tension. One of the things you had referenced in your book was there are specific types of suicide attempts have been connected with PFC. You know, it's a, it's a small literature, but it's a, it's a very true thing. It's not something I want to actually advertise too much to give people ideas. That, um, right. Like people, people are trying to kill themselves by putting a gun to their temple, firing the gun. What they end up doing is taking out the medial ventral portion was called the ventral medial portion that means bottom middle portion of the prefrontal cortex and that really deals with the bulk of emotions there's a lot of emotional intensity has to go through there and when you you know basically take that out with a bullet um, it's like getting a lobotomy uh, all the emotional intensity that you could experience goes away, and the ones who survive shooting themselves, which are very few, I want to say, um, wake up with no depressions. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, you know, one of the reasons we know so much about the prefrontal cortex, aside from imaging studies, is that during the first and second world wars, there were a lot more head injuries than ever before from explosions. And neuropsychologists like yourself, and you know, the famous Dr. Luria uh, from yes. Russia, 
uh, in, the, in the First World War, began to see these soldiers with frontal head injuries and start to see that they had, you know, not problems moving or walking or controlling their bladder or something like that. They had trouble controlling their emotions. The same as the story and, of uh, Phineas Gage. This is the famous Phineas Gage, who... Remember if I talk about him in the book, do I? I guess I give him a little press. I think you mentioned him. He was a famous guy who he had uh, this long rod and he was tapping down a, uh, I think it was a dynamite tap. For railroad tracks. Yeah, and exploded and the and the pole shot through his head and amazingly it didn't kill him. But, uh, went through that same part of the prefrontal cortex that I just was just talking about, the part with all the emotions. And he was a mild mannered guy and all you know, after he got better and out of bed, he was loud and garbage and se- became a bit drunkard. Yeah, sexually inappropriate. And for any of you guys who want to come out to Massachusetts, in the Harvard Museum, they actually have the actual skull of Phineas Gage and the railroad spear that went through his skull. Oh, is that right? No kidding. Yeah, yeah. It's on display in the Harvard Museum. Yeah, I didn't know that. So do you see this becoming, uh, (laughs) ironic word to use, but do you see this becoming a, a pandemic from a psychological, psychiatric standpoint? Because it doesn't seem like technology is ever going to go away. It's only advancing. I think it already is a pandemic, and that's why we've seen these advancing numbers. I mean, this, if you look back at the data, it really goes back to the Second World War, when they started looking at things like wellness, the famous Harvard men's study, Mm -hmm. where they started to look at men's wellness and comparing them to different groups. Um, And it was really in the 1950s that they started to see a large drop in in well-being among Americans and then in other countries. Um, So this data really goes way back and you can look at parallels in any industrialized country. And I mentioned two lines of evidence that that support this. One is immigration, and the other is urbanization. And the immigration line of evidence is that when people immigrate from less developed to more developed countries, they take on the higher psychiatric incidence of disease of their new home country, and so do their children. Is that more so of a de- demand uh, to kind of fit into like like a goodness of fit model? Like in order to assimilate, this is how I have to operate? Well, I think it's more than that. I think it's because they're in a more modern society because their children who are already assimilated have it too. So, you know, people have said, no, that's not right. It's because of the stress of, of having to be an immigrant. But, you know, if you look, it just continues on from generation to generation. And then the other data is urbanization, where people move from rural to urban environments, their incidence 
fascinatingly of it, especially schizophrenia goes up and there doesn't seem to be anything that can move the incidence of schizophrenia but moving to an urban environment actually all psychosis um, the incidence goes up now we know a little more about that it seems to be that that's more in in uh, lower income countries mm-hmm. all of this is to say that I agree it's not going away we don't have uh, something that's going to substitute for a technological society we don't have communities and neighborhoods and cultures and I you know I'm not a traditionalist by nature so I'm not saying you know we have to go back to the 1950s you know, I, I love technology personally. Sure. Um, but there is something about uh, having stable social connections, having ways that we do things that are transmitted, you know, from generation to generation instead of from, from Google to person. Um, there are things about those kinds of lives that our that our brains are are more naturally made to deal with. And I I, I see a, a huge problem with uh, the child and adolescent population that if you don't have the newest iPhone and if you don't have a certain computer and you're not on someone's Instagram chat or you're not on someone's Facebook page, the psychological ramifications of I'm socially awkward, no one likes me, I'm not, you know, you get into gender identity issues. And I think parents, from my, from what I've seen in clinical practice, really struggle with, if my child goes to school with a flip phone that has no access to the internet, they're going to be ostracized. So there's almost, it, it, the irony is there's almost a necessity to give children access to all these devices. And I think the schools, at least in Massachusetts, did a really bad job of just switching from traditional schooling to giving everybody iPads and Chromebooks. And now that you're giving them access to the world without the requisite neurological skills and abilities to appropriately know how to navigate that. Right, right. And the social world, the social skills, excuse me, <laughs> and the, just the knowledge skills about what, you know, what to do with an avalanche of data. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's an interesting point. I, you know, I don't I don't see children, um, and my kids grow up grown, so I'm not. I'm oh, it's it's it, 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 it's detrimental to the point of the increased depression, uh, increase in suicidal ideations, self injurious behaviors, and and there's so much emphasis on if I'm not connected to whatever perceived social network that I'm ostracized, I'm excluded, I'm different, I'm unlikable, I'm, I'm undesirable. And the only uh, way to have that is I need the iPhone or, or an Android to be on this chat room and, and right. ki- kids count how many, you know, how many parties am I invited to and how many people liked my Instagram post. That there's that, that to, and parents are just because they, a lot of times they didn't, we didn't grow up with this. You know, we went out and played. We played baseball in the corner. Yeah, uh, we we talked. I remember the you know, I'm not that old, but I remember you know the 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 phone cord. You're talking and you're wrapped around the 
the wiry cord talking in the corner and then then, then you're done but it it's just it 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 definitely here to stay but i think you know your your book makes a great point of you got to look at the impact of what it's doing to your body and your brain well that's a whole other dimension that you that you just mentioned that i don't include so you're sort of saying that now you can easily quantify your social status as a 10 year old Mm -hmm. and you know it could look pretty bad uh, whereas before you might have a just basically an inkling, but you had a couple of goofy friends and you'd make do. But uh, yeah, so this is just yet another dimension uh, of uh, you know the, the difficulties this makes for us, and our brains are just are simply not designed to live this way. So. One thing I talk about later in the book is that in in the middle of the 20th century, when people no longer walked everywhere and carried packages up 10 flights of stairs, and they had more than enough food to eat for the first time in human history, people had to go on diets and begin exercising. And now that's our new normal. Now, do you see this as more of a function of industrialized nations versus nations that are not as industrialized? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And as I was just saying, um, whereas now taking care of our minds is going to become a new normal. And how, 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 how would you suggest people do that, taking care of your mind? Well, there are a lot of common things available today, meditation and yoga. But I think I think everyone needs to design a, kind of a two-pronged approach. One prong is to get away from very intensive BFC, prefrontal cortex activities. And I list some things like that in the book anything to do with using your hands, um, anything to do with getting outside, appreciating beauty, um, things to do with other people, where other people are the object of the activity, not some technology. And I list a few more things. And the points of all of them are you know, part of your life has to be get out of your, I mean, we're never really out of our out of our PFCs, you know, of course, but we're not using it as our main tool to get by. We're using something else. We're using our hands. We're using sunshine. We're using some friends or neighbors um, and other things like those kinds of approaches. So that's one, one of the two prongs. The other prong is sort of paradoxically opposite. It's not get away from your mind, it's master it. So like dieting and exercising, we have to become a little bit more master of our realms. Uh, So things like meditation practices and Anything that involves 
practicing focus, mindfulness, relaxation, and things, you know, that for the history of humanity, everybody just did in their daily lives. Right. We have, we have to now practice so, so we, can, we can do them effectively. So those two things have to be part of everyone's life. Do you think Pretty it ever gets? Forever. Do you think it ever gets to a point of no return? I think if if culture, if human culture does not catch up, um, it will get to a point of no return where where mental illness and lack of well being will be so common that it'll start to become hard for us to function. Um, so we have to find a way where we maintain the, the liberties, the kind of post-enlightenment liberties we maintain of, of free thought and free speech and moving where we want and worshiping how we want and if we want and political freedom, all those sorts of things, economic freedom, um, while we maintain some semblance of culture. Now, it doesn't have to be an ethnic or religious culture. It could just be human culture. Um, But there has to be a way in which we rediscover each other and we rediscover ways to communicate how to live. Um, Again, whether it's something trivial like cooking or something difficult like like being being a grown-up. I know you you wrote this book at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you think there would be anything that you would have written differently in, in the midst of the pandemic or at this current point in time? I think I would have had uh, uh, really just more ammunition. It it would have seemed seemed so much more evident uh, than it even does now. Um, so I think I was able to include a, a little bit about COVID at the end, where COVID is just modern life turned up loud. Um, and we, we, we live as we live in an Amazon culture. I, I want it now and I want it the next day. And I just type my, my search in and then that leads me to a different page and we just stay inundated with it. And I think people have a hard time understanding you're you're negatively impacting one of the most important structures of your brain. You know, the, the, this this is the gateway to, to thinking. And I've just seen. Do, do do you see any any correlation between frontal fatigue, and you know about the Fleming effect? Uh, I could talk to you guys a different yes. time about that. Do you see any correlation yes, between the the Fleming effect and frontal fatigue? Um, I I would say yes, and that they both largely involve executive function, which is. Um, you know, the biggest, uh, most important job of the prefrontal cortex. Any, advi- so, uh, any advice for parents 
on what their children, working with their children on monitoring their use of technology? I, you know, again, I'm not an expert in children, so I just say that as a caveat, but the way I raised my children was the less technology, the better. Uh, you know, up to a certain point, like puberty, then, you know, I, I didn't allow much screen time at all. Now, this, there was much less available. That was 20 years ago. Um, but I would say, you know, while they're in their formative years, keep screen time minimal. Uh, watch what kind of screen time it is, and you know, sh- sh- shoot them up games. Mm-hmm. They serve no, no purpose. Uh, so at least there's some quality screen time. Um, again, it's not necessarily bad, uh, but it it needs to be a tool that they know how to use. And it, know how to it, use would you say well. in moderation? And, and in moderation, because otherwise, it's not a tool they're using, the tool is using them. That's a great point. Do you think the APA was remiss in not including internet addiction as a diagnostic category? Uh, I, I'd say no, but primarily because... I think they need to be very careful about adding more categories um, because once we add something, people get the idea that we're saying that this is a disease as opposed to a problem of living. And the DSM comes under tremendous criticism for that. I think unwarranted criticism. Like, oh, they've, they've changed sadness into depression and they've changed shyness into social anxiety disorder. And no, we haven't done that. We can tell the difference between those things. Um, so I think we have to be careful. But I'm sure you know as well as I do that, you know, certain things are not drugs, but they have a highly addictive potential. And they... Mm-hmm look like addictions, act like addictions, well, then, you know, uh, gambling is not a drug, but I've seen people lose everything to gambling. Right. Um, So, you know, addictions take place when there's not chemicals involved. So, I'm kind of giving you two answers. I think it's, I think it probably is important. And, uh, it's had all the same patterns of addictions. People are drawn to it and they sneak around to get more and they can't seem to get enough, even when it does damage to their regular lives. So it acts like an addiction. Whether we should call it a new disease, I'm not so sure yet. Now, my, my last question to you is, do you think frontal fatigue extends to any other parts of the brain? No, I, I do not think it does, um, because nothing nothing is like the prefrontal cortex. Nothing has, or not, you know, we don't know enough about any other areas. We happen to know a great deal about the prefrontal cortex, but 
a lot of the rest of the brain operates, you know, much at the same time, and it's hard to pin down functions as well as we can in the prefrontal cortex. Um, but nothing has the incredible suite of activities of, of functions that the prefrontal cortex has, and that makes it that makes it our tool of choice for modern life because we can pay attention, we can switch to different topics, we can think very abstractly. Uh, you know, we can have a whole world sitting right here from our office seats. Um, and it's all taking place courtesy of the prefrontal cortex. Nothing else could possibly do that. Well, so it's, it's, it's letting us live this life. Well, I thought you did an excellent job with the book. I strongly encourage all of our my listeners uh, to definitely get this book. It, it's, it's really transformative. It paints an amazing picture of what Dr. Rigo was talking about. Uh, I see it as a neuropsychologist and a diagnostician on a daily basis across all spectrums and all ages. Um, even different socioeconomic statuses. Uh, it's definitely something to be mindful of. Um, Dr. Rigo, I really appreciate your time for coming on the podcast and doing this and giving your education and your knowledge and sharing this because this is part of our reality. This is part of our lifestyle and is not going away anytime soon. It's only going to advance as you read about, you know, the meta universe and, and all the stuff that Facebook and all the stuff is doing in virtual reality that we can't get away from it. But, um, Again, my sincere pleasure uh, speaking with you yeah. and having you on this program. Uh, to all of you guys who listen, I really encourage you to listen to this episode, listen to it several times. This is great information, incredibly important, uh, because it, it, it is uh, increasing the prevalence rates of mental health across the spectrum of diagnostic categories. Uh, until ne- next time... Uh, you can get a hold of me at psychologyunpluggedoutlook.com. You can get a hold of me through Psychology Today. You can reach me directly at my cell phone, 617-750-9411, East Coast Standard Time. I do my best to reach out to everybody. If I haven't gotten back to you, please reach out again. Uh, until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and take care of your prefrontal cortex. Bye, Bye guys.